Hello, bonjour, and welcome to this last episode of the season four of this podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm going to cover the 17 key learnings that you should probably take home from this season. Let's jump straight into it with the first element, which was actually shared twice on that microphone by Aaron Tartakovsky and Ramzi Bouzerda. The rate at which we are adding new building stock to our global supply is like we're adding a new Manhattan every single month from now until 2060. So we're just building. By 2050, 70% of the world population will live in cities, actually. And what is completely mind-blowing is that we are building New York City every single month to reach that figure. I guess you get the idea. The world is urbanizing fast, and when I say fast, we have this impressive pace of Manhattan or New York being built every month from now to 2050 or 2060. So we get the image, and I'll fact check it in a minute to get a very clear idea of what we're discussing here. But just before, you might be wondering, why does that matter? Why shall we care as the water industry about this urbanization pace? Well, in the end, it's an infrastructure question. Our water infrastructure is designed for a certain amount of people living in certain places. The water network is designed that way and the water and wastewater treatment plants are designed that way. So if suddenly we have new skyscrapers and a denser settlement in those exact same cities, or if we start to have large amounts of urban dwellers, like that's often the case in the developing world, it creates a new burden on that infrastructure. This leaves us with roughly two choices. Number one, we dig out that said existing infrastructure and rebuild it larger. That would work, but it would also be very expensive. Or number two, we supplement and augment that infrastructure with decentralized solutions across the cities, in industrial parks and in all new build areas. And we also use process intensification to turn our treatment infrastructure into stronger powerhouses within the same surface and often the same concrete tanks. You might have guessed from the way I just explained that, but there's one option that sounds more appealing than the other, both in terms of cost and efficiency. So we'll probably see an increased distributed slash decentralized approach on the road towards 2050 or 2060. So the horizon Ramsey and Aaron were giving us. So that's why we shall matter as water professionals. But now beyond the strong image both shared, what's the exact fact-check figure you shall use to shine during your next dinner in town? The United Nations project a growth in urban population which shall reach 68% of the world's population by 2050. One century before, in 1950, about 750 million people were living in cities, while currently there are about 4.2 billion people in those same cities. So six times more and 55% of humanity. Most of the projected growth to go from 55 to 68% over the next 30 years will be concentrated in three countries, India, China and Nigeria. And maybe even more important when it comes to infrastructure, the fastest growing agglomerations are cities with fewer than 1 million inhabitants. Why does that matter? Well, simply because while the design margin on urban networks in big cities might be able to absorb a little increase, that's clearly not possible if you're doubling the dimension of a mid-sized agglomeration. But you might still be wondering, are we talking of one Manhattan a month? or rather one New York City. Well, 
the United Nations don't go to that figurative analogy, so I had to dig a bit further. Every mention I found online always linked back to Aaron and Epic Cleantech one way or the other. So kudos Aaron, it's good to see the water industry figuring its communication right. But I tried to do the math myself, and if we take the UN figure of 2.5 billion more people living in cities by 2050, we divide it by the roughly 350 months between now and 2050, that makes for a monthly growth of 7 million urban inhabitants. Manhattan is about 1.6 million inhabitants, and New York 8.5. So I'd say that Ramsey's analogy sounds a bit closer to the actual number. Yet, there would be a lot to factor in, such as the decrease in population in places like Eastern Europe or Japan, and the impossibility to take a building in Tokyo or Warsaw and transfer it to Lagos or Delhi. So if anyone has a better study than my back-of-the-envelope calculation, I'd be very curious, so please reach out to me. That leads me to my learning number two, shared by Luke Butler on that microphone. While almost everyone has a hydraulic model of the water network we were discussing with this urbanization element, almost no one uses it to its real potential today. I see hydraulic models having so much more potential than just being something that's you know, pulled out every five years to write up a big plan. Actually, we've just assumed that we'll need to revamp our infrastructure if more people live in cities. But what if that was simply wrong? What if there was an untapped potential just because we don't use the right tool to look for more inside what's existing? We discussed on this microphone a while ago how digitization could find up to 80% untapped potential in water and wastewater treatment plants. That was back in season one and is still as accurate as it was by then. But this presence of untapped potential is also very true on networks, as we've covered with Olivier Narbet from the notorious GF piping system on that microphone by season three. I was discussing with Olivier a couple of days ago and he shared with me a figure that showed how you could reduce burst rates by as much as 75% on your water network by just better balancing pressure. If you bear in mind that the world loses an estimated 136 trillion liters of water every year in non-revenue water, aka most of the time leaks, you get why this is particularly interesting. You can act on it today and reach out to Luke or Olivier to hear their solutions, or you can have a look at the webcast Olivier has been putting together with his team. The link is in the description. Now, if you like numbers, let's continue with my next learning and we are leaving water networks to now explore water and wastewater treatments to discuss the hot topic of PFAS. You maybe remember that number that Henrik Hagemann shared us. The Nordic Council of Ministers, so this is the government, they basically put a price tag on the cost of PFAS chemicals in the blood in Europeans. It's 84 billion euros in annual cost every year. Actually, further studies in the US tended to similar results with an estimated impact on health costs of about 37 to 59 billion dollars. This is very interesting because that's a bit what Alice Schmidt explained on that microphone a while ago. We are no longer talking of the cost of remediation, but rather of avoided cost if we correct the problem. We all know that most PFAS removal technologies nowadays are still quite young and that the limited places around the world that actually decided to tackle the problem offer so far a limited path to scale. So to be blunt, removing PFAS today is expensive. But what these studies show is that not removing those forever chemicals is even more costly. Is it about time to act? 
Well, even more if you consider that the studies I just cited all add two points to that reflection. First, the benefits of PFAS use are quite concentrated in a few hands, but the societal cost of their impact is nicely diluted and externalized among individuals, communities and governments, which is quite unfair to use an understatement. The second point is that all of this is the estimated cost today. But we are talking of long-term consequences and we're probably still underestimating this long-term effect. So with regulations starting to pop up left and right, like the recent move in California, I'd say that's for sure a topic to closely monitor as water professionals in the months and years to come. And honestly, you can count on me for exactly that. Let me do that in an ad fashion. If you're just listening by coincidence to that episode, consider subscribing so you won't miss the next ones. Remember, it's free. <laughs> For my fourth learning, I'll take the most outside-of-the-box discussion I had on that microphone in this season 4, and it's all about 4 with the fourth phase of water Gerard Pollack introduced to us. How can I synthesize all of this in a few words? Well, there's a list of behaviors of water which are hardly explained with what we all commonly know of H2O. Why is ice slippery? Why do waves persist over long distances? How do the upper hold 50 times their weight in water? Why does warm water freeze faster than cold water? Why can you build a tiny water bridge between two glasses? Why do droplets of water exist in water? And actually, all of that may have a simple explanation which, according to Occam's Razor's principle, tends to indicate that's the right one. And that explanation is that there is a fourth phase of water, somehow between liquid and solid, a semi-crystalline one, which could be named H3O2. That fourth phase would form at the interfaces of liquid water in what Gerald calls exclusion zones. Exclusion zone actually describes a zone that contains this fourth phase of water and it does exclude almost everything from it because it's a dense tightly packed kind of entity and almost nothing can get into it i won't redo you the deep dive of how gerald and his team came to the observation and explanation of that fourth phase i'll just give you two hot prospects for us water professionals to maybe leverage his easy water's properties the first one is everything around a water battery and the potential low-tech application it could represent with only water, sunlight and simple apparatus around it. But probably even more sexy, if you allow me that term, the property of exclusion zones to actually exclude everything that's not water from them could be leveraged for desalination purposes. Gerald's team works on it within Fourth Phase Incorporated and triggered several additional startups around the world that actually look at it. And at least from an intellectual exercise point of view, exploring that rabbit hole was pretty fascinating, and I'm still on the edge of it as next steps would involve exploring the likes of Schoberger, Deryagin or Steiner. I'm not saying everything those people have written is right, and there's a good proportion that's a bit esoteric, but I think it's always good to stay open-minded in such a field as water. That was learning number four and involved the fourth phase of water. So guess what learning number five will be all about? Exactly, the fifth phase of water. Okay, nobody calls it like that, so let's use the name you probably already heard, supercritical water. 
Water reaches its critical point at 374 degrees Celsius and 221 bar. And whenever it crosses that point, it starts to behave weirdly, as Kobinagar shared on that microphone. Yeah, it completely flips. So instead of water being a good solvent for salts, for inorganic, it becomes a very good solvent for organic molecule, but not for inorganic. Once you add oxygen into the mix, then really the magic happens. Then you create this strongest oxidizing environment that can rapidly break any carbon bond, including even the CF bonds that you have in PFAS. Supercritical water oxidation is indeed a very promising prospect to remove hard-to-treat pollutants from water. But if you ask me, there's something much more interesting about the technology. It allows to tap into the chemical energy trapped in wastewater. There's actually a direct correlation between the chemical oxygen demand of wastewater and the energy it contains. Theoretically, there's 16.1 kilojoule per gram of COD. Now, so far, it's been a riddle for us water professionals to unleash this energy. And instead of turning wastewater treatment into an energy-positive process, we are wasting energy on it to destroy that trapped energy which we call pollution. Don't get me wrong, it is pollution. But it is pollution with potential. A potential supercritical oxidation would allow tackling into a bit like microbial fuel cells and microbial electrolysis cells we've discussed in season 1 and 2. How does that translate into concrete steps? Well, when you pass wastewater through the supercritical oxidation reactor, the reaction it triggers is exothermic. So you capture a portion of the chemical energy of wastewater as heat, which you can turn into electricity by operating your supercritical oxidation plant as a thermic power plant. Of course, there are technical limits today. Treating wastewater at nearly 400 degrees Celsius and over 221 bars is a challenge which involves a bit more complications than stating the physical principle in a podcast. But as Kobe reminded us in our deep dive on the technology, that's still lower values than what you would find in diesel engines that equip a good portion of the cars you cross in the streets. Another limit is that today, like with the microbial fuel cells and electrolysis cells I mentioned before, we would first aim at being energy neutral. So the power plant element of it is still theoretical, and the seven times more energy inside wastewater than the energy needed to depollute that same wastewater only exists on paper and chemical calculations so far. Yet, that's a common trait of all technologies in their early steps. Go compare an iPhone before it had numbers and fresh out of the hands of Steve Jobs in 2007 with the no-name cheap smartphone we all have in our pockets today that's more powerful than NASA's computers that brought men on the moon and it's night and day. And beyond the energetical aspect of it, supercritical water oxidation comes with another incredible feature. The entire treatment involves a residence time of 4 seconds. So there's a capex benefit as well, as it involves much, 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 much smaller facilities. In a nutshell, yes, supercritical water oxidation or SQUO is still in baby pants, but there's a reason why 374 water has a half a billion market capitalization with only a few references. And that leads us already to learning number six, and I'll keep the trend of having corresponding insights with Walid Khoury's six strong drivers for growth in Sub-Saharan Africa. That is a really potent take-home message he shared. Whatever preconceived idea you have of Africa, it's probably wrong. 
not fully wrong because yes, it is scattered and politically challenging, but still Africa is an interesting market to look at as water professionals. Indeed, it is starting from a quite low infrastructure level. Only 42% of the population is served with safely managed water, 23% with safely managed sanitation and only 7% with at least secondary wastewater treatment. If we forget the consequences of this low infrastructure level, this shows in marketing terms a broad business opportunity. It is not sustainable to deprive populations of their rights to affordable and safe water. And that's a spoiler for season 5, as Christopher Gasson will share on that microphone, it is not profitable either. Let me make it even more blunt and direct. Regardless of how much of a shame it is that by 2022 we still have such a low level of access to safe drinking water, it is an economic nonsense. So there's a clear benefit in ramping up the infrastructure and hence a clear win-win to find there as the water industry. You already know the second driver wallet shared, which is the urbanization rate in the region. Remember what I said minutes ago, this New York we are building every month between now and 2050 will mostly happen in three countries, China, India and Nigeria. And as much as I recall, Nigeria is in Sub-Saharan Africa. The third driver is industrialization. First, for good and bad reasons, Sub-Saharan Africa was ahead of the world regarding relative industrial independence. The world somehow refused to play with Africa as a full-blown player in the global value chain. And as a consequence, its industry is less specialized and more generalist. Now, when you couple that with a localization drive, that means that a full ecosystem is feeding the growth of the area with also very specific needs. And it's really not only multinationals playing there, it's a local food chain with a lot of young companies. And you would have guessed they need water to operate, which is where it connects with our industry. That also leads us to the fourth driver, increasing and strengthening water discharge, water treatment and water management regulations. Because industrials are not that different in Sub-Saharan Africa compared with the rest of the world. If you don't push them a bit, well, treating water sustainably is a cost to be in business, at least in the short term. Hence, the importance of the incentive. Fifth driver, demographics. That's at the same time a driver and a challenge, but Sub-Saharan Africa's population will double in the next 30 years. And it will triple before the end of this century. And unless we find a way for people to live without water, directly and indirectly, that's an obvious driver. Last driver, money. Sub-Saharan Africa is rising in terms of GDP by about 4% a year, which, as Walid shared, means higher prosperity and disposable income. Again, probably against our Western preconceptions. So what shall we do with these six drivers? Well, for Walid, it's straightforward. Multinationals are reluctant to enter that market for the reasons which are on the other side of that same coin, meaning the political instability and the scattered nature of the market. But that should not prevent more agile players like startup and SMEs from striving in that region. Let's switch to learning number seven, and I promise you I'll go a bit faster on the next ones. Remember, if you want the long form of it, there are 19 other episodes in this season four, which are full of gems, just jump into it. So number seven, water doesn't always belong to the ones you'd expect, as Scott Hamilton revealed. The biggest owner of water in Victoria is a Canadian pension fund that has a $1 company as <laughs> a front, which is, I find quite fascinating. Indeed, Canada's Public Sector Pension Investment Board, PSP Investments, 
which is the pension fund for the country's armed forces, public servants, police and firefighters, now owns roughly 2% of all the Mary Darling Basin's available water rights. To put that into perspective, we are talking here of over 200 billion liters of water on a market that's quite special. It is an awesome playground for water trading and arbitrage with ever-increasing valuations. But don't worry, you can leverage that trend even if you don't sit in Australia. And don't take me wrong, I'm not implying you should. Why can you? Well, first, because everybody can play on the Australian market, as you've seen with that Canadian pension fund. Then also because Australia is not alone on that path. Ever heard of that tiny little University of Harvard? Well, like most of the university, it features an endowment fund. You can donate to the foundation, deduct it from your taxes, and that money will, for instance, fund scholarships. But not only. Harvard's endowment fund has a nice $39 billion to play with and uses at least a portion of it to invest in water. That's how the university's fund has been buying vineyards in California, maybe for the grape and wine production, but also, if not above all, for the water rights they feature. Will that end up fully turning water into a commodity? That's the golden ticket question, but there might be interesting new ways to explore there, and you'll see by season 5 with Katrina Donahy that those new ways don't only exist on paper, but are currently rolled out. Learning number 8, a $2.6 billion a year water industry segment might well quite soon be in trouble. UV disinfection is indeed the second largest disinfection technology after chlorine. It's nicely spread across water and wastewater treatment, and it's a dominant solution in market verticals like ballast water treatment or water reuse. But UV disinfection systems have a problem, and it's their lamps. At the moment, water benefits from an exemption under Minamata and Rojas for the use of mercury. UV, in the conventional way, we use mercury vapor lamps. Here's the problem. As Wayne Barn highlights, UV disinfection features mercury vapor lamps. That use of mercury in light sources, which is a hazardous substance, is restrained by multiple regulations Wayne just cited, such as the EU Rojas Directive for electrical and electronic equipment, as well as similar regulations in a growing number of countries and regions, like for instance the UN Minamata Convention. In simple words, mercury is only allowed in special applications under special exemptions. So far, the water industry is one of these exemptions because it struggles to find an efficient alternative to mercury vapor lamps. But that might be history with UV LED and its continuous improvement following Hate's law. So for sure, that's an area to watch in the next months and years. Let's switch to the rapid fire learnings for the next six ones. Number nine, there are at least 36 billion water assets beyond the water meter, which can deliver meaningful data that are not captured today. If you combine this with the fact Ramzi Bouzarda shared on that microphone that water takes suddenly much more value around its point of use, that opens interesting avenues for optimization and new business approaches. Number 10, you might have fought green algae in your wastewater treatment plant for a while, yet Cesar Narvez shared how it could improve the energetical balance of sewage treatments by one-to-one -one replacing activated sludge. One step further, if you turn this green algae into biogas, you can make your entire process carbon negative and potentially energy neutral. By the way, green algae is a hot topic that may lead into bioplastic and large-scale applications in brine treatments. 
I'm looking for a speaker to address that point on my microphone. So if you're that person or if you know someone, just reach out to me. I'd be pleased to feature you. Number 11, the intuitive approach to reducing the overall cost of a water system is quite logically to cut the material expenses. Well, Sebastian Andresen shared us how he did the exact opposite by leveraging a very expensive material, silicon carbide, to replace polymeric membranes for the better. Beyond just a case of membrane treatments, it's an interesting tip from an innovation perspective. That's a bit of a mix of two strategies Fridolin Beissert shares in his Creative Strategies book, Shifting Perspectives and Pattern Breaking. And if you want a refresher on design thinking, go back to season 3 and listen to my discussion with Leah Imobostek. Number 12. Groundwater was the theme of this year's World Water Day. It is a sadly depleting resource, which is often seen as something free you can just pump out of the soil and screw your neighbors and future generations. Well, to try to solve this, California adopted the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act in 2014. Don't worry, it's still not enforced. But that regulation could finally see a rollout of groundwater tariffs and prices. That would be a first best practice, but Ellen Bruno and her team went the extra mile and studied how to even improve it. They found out that groundwater trading may result in increased prices by 70% in those areas that would already feature a tariff. And yet, as it would incentivize water to flow to its best use, it could still save water-scarce areas like California half a billion dollars per year. Number 13. Green hydrogen won't be the tailwind in our water sales that we sometimes dream of. It will be an interesting side business for the water industry, but not a tidal wave. The biggest impact will probably reside in desertic countries with an ocean to the west and will be an opportunity for the desalination players that could see their installed base jump by a 25% factor. I'm not going too deep in this recap on that topic because with the full trilogy we just concluded, you have plenty of materials to explore, including a massive 19 pages infographic you'll find on the Don't Waste Water website. The link, you would have guessed, is in the description. Number 14. Despite technological advances and sustainability concerns, there's still an alarmingly high amount of industrial wastewater that gets incinerated. It's the kind of thing one can rationalize and understand as industrials hence control their liabilities, but on-site treatments often cost a fraction of incineration, and under new business model approaches, they offer similar control of those liabilities to these industrial actors. So it might be about time to stop seeing these trucks on the roads, just conveying something that doesn't burn easily to places sufficiently far away to not be in an industrial's backyard anymore. And that leads us to number 15, the boom in new types of business models I just shortly alluded to. Do you remember how the water industry likes acronyms? Well, we've lived for a while in a world of DB, design build, DBO, design build operate, and BOT, build operate transfer. And if you remember season three, we've seen how design build approaches offer a 39% average capital saving over the traditional three-step approach of someone designs, someone bids, and hopefully then only builds. When you add operation into the pot, so you turn DB into DBO, you add an additional 26% saving on the overall plant's life cycle cost. 
Now, what we see more and more is a growing share of PPPs in the water industry. That's private-public partnerships. This deal structure enables faster rollout of infrastructure by leveraging private capital and is extensively used these days in countries like Brazil or Saudi Arabia. Now, if you're afraid of acronyms, you should take a paracetamol tab because there are new kids on the block. Software has SaaS, you know, software as a service. Well, the water industry has WAS, water as a service, which also works with wastewater treatment as a service. Along the same lines, we have DBFOM, design, build, finance, operate and maintain, and many, many shades of grey in between. But in concrete terms, what does that change for the water industry? Well, it might be a path to faster innovation, as we heard from Jonathan Rohn or Stephen Delette in this season, and from Matthew Silver, for instance, in season two. Indeed, a company can assume the risk of rolling out its technology, and at the same time, the end user controls its liability to reuse the point I made a minute ago on industrial wastewater management. For suppliers, it brings back arguments of total lifetime cost or total cost of ownership. Because now, the integrator bringing a process to life is also responsible for its operation and directly benefits from a first-time right or quality approach. And overall, it uses digitization as an enabler, something we've seen with Jacob Bossar in Season 2 and with Jonathan and Steven in this Season 4. Remote operation, preventive maintenance, all these buzzwords now become realities under the new realm of a new buzzword, water as a service. Okay, we have two learnings left, and for this number 16, we'll stay on this WAS or SAS trend to underline how against all the odds, there is a tremendous win-win business opportunity for specialized vertical SAS in industries like the water sector. That's an insight David Lynch shared with us this season and that I wanted to dig a bit further. David builds with Clear something he calls the operating system for water. When we think about operating systems, it's not like uh, the Linux or the Windows services we were before. This is about, I'm coming into work and I want to see something like Monday.com or Asana uh, or Rippling where it just pulls all these disparate processes and systems and tasks that need to be done into one place, which is very, very tightly aligned to the objective and the mission of my business. Honestly, Clear is very successful with that approach. But why? Why does the water industry prefer Clear to Asana, Rippling or Monday.com? Is it an exception? Well, first, no. Vertical SaaS companies, so software as a service companies that address one specific industry, are quite successful these days. Think of Dr. Lib for healthcare, Toast for restaurants, or Procore for construction. All of those became multi-billion companies. And that's the path Clear and the other digital water companies I had the pleasure to host on that microphone are following to gain a share of the expected $20 billion digital water market by 2030. So, if this is not an exception, it leaves us with three questions. Question number one, why are vertical water industry SaaS superior to horizontal ones that could go across many sectors and leverage scale effects? Well, first, for a simple reason. They have the potential to deliver a better product with features really catered to the water industry. It also offers them a higher market penetration potential, what David just underlined with his aim at becoming the water operating system. 
and a higher penetration opens doors for further expansion of the business model as a SaaS-enabled marketplace. That's important because the limit of the vertical approach is the market size. The path to scale for Azana when they roll out a feature is much easier than for Clear, Kendu or Catium. But if now our water specialists can enlarge the deal size, it compensates for that disadvantage. Water SaaS companies also have the edge over generalists in terms of sales. Your acquisition team can develop catered content and approaches in a water world that's arguably a unique beast. So on the product and go-to-market side of things, it sounds like our vertical water SaaS stands a chance against the horizontal behemoths. But question number two, why now? Why would they be successful today and start making a dent in the water industry when they kind of struggled in the past years to do so? There as well, the answer is straightforward. COVID just leapfrogged our path towards digital transformation. And the why now question rather transforms in why didn't we do it before? The other aspect is that money also starts to flow into those companies. Clear, for instance, just raised $16 million. In the past, investors were a bit reluctant because of the limited total addressable market, but that's history now that the operating system argument beats that concern. So that leads us to the golden third question. What does it take to be successful in building a water industry vertical SaaS? Okay, let's be humble here. I'm no one to have the golden receipt, but I still try to nail it down to what I've observed working among my previous guests. First, you still need to think of your total addressable market. So your long-term game must be to offer more than just a piece of software. You must embed yourself on the critical path of your users and build upon that once you're installed. Therefore, think of your positioning as well. To start with, you must build upon a brick that's just too good to be ignored. For Catium, that's the modeling of a water network in a couple of clicks. For Transcend, it's the design of a full plant in a matter of seconds. And for Clear, it's breaking down any stupidly annoying process in simple, actionable tasks. As cool as those are, they are not sufficient to build a long-term successful company. That's why all of these companies have roadmaps, but these features are solid foundation stones to build upon. The next asset you need is a strong why now. For Catium again, that could be like urbanization is galloping and your investment sheet goes through the roof. Right now, you have an opportunity to better the picture thanks to digitization. But you have to act now. And then honestly, there's the part where I'm not sure. Some of the panel companies I looked at are built by people that come from another industry. So is that a criterion to challenge everything? Because at the same time, we also have examples of water professionals scratching their own itches and hence building an appealing water SaaS. So I'd say the critical trait here is rather open-mindedness and willingness to challenge the status quo. I told you I'm no one to have the best receipt, so let's say we'll have to keep on improving the algorithm in the next seasons. Talking of that, just before we move to our learning number 17, which will close this summary, let me remind you of some housekeeping. If you like what you hear, please share that episode around you, grab the phone of your friends and subscribe them to the podcast. Why should you? Well, because the growth of this show enables me to keep attracting incredible guests. 
That's how we'll kick up season five next week with Reinhard Hübner, the CEO of the Water Company of the Year, aka Ski on Water. And that's also how we'll continue the week after with the water industry's godfather, namely Christopher Gasson, the owner of Global Water Intelligence. There will be many more incredible guests in that season five and hopefully the next ones as well. And that's how I can extract for you valuable insights and learnings from all these fantastic speakers. So you see, that's a team effort. And please again, share this episode around you. That being said, let's swiftly conclude with learning number 17. 2023 will be a crucial year for water with the UN Water Decade Conference. Why so? And why does something happening in 2023 matter right now? Well, Mina Guli makes it crystal clear. That unique moment is an opportunity in 2023 when the United Nations hosts their big conference on water, the first in almost 50 years. And we have an opportunity at that time to say, enough talk, now act. And the only way that that will happen is if we spend the next 18 months moving together in a unified way to deliver on these three solutions and to say, by the time we hit the steps of that United Nations, where that conference is going to meet with world leaders and corporate leaders from across the world, by the time we get there, there must be no option but to take meaningful, serious, bold action forward on water. I think she said it all. So enough talk, now act. And I'll see you next week for the first episode of season five.